We'll be in Matthew chapter 11 this morning. Before we get into the passage, mostly because I wanted to talk about St. George a little bit in the middle of the sermon, but I would just forget. There's nothing in here about St. George, Utah, so there's a really good chance I just go all the way through and never think about it. But I thought I'd say a few things about that. We are planning a church in St. George. We're leaving Friday morning. Um, You've probably heard a little bit about this. St. George is at the bottom left corner of the state. There it is, all the way at the bottom. Right on the Arizona border. Hopefully you can read that. Um, go to the next slide. The, uh, there you go. It's a very desert climate. It's right on the edge of the Mojave Desert. Like I said, it's around the Arizona border, so it's very hot there. Um, get the next one. It's very beautiful. Just a little better shot of the city. Um, if, if you look back and, you know, you look beyond the city and those valleys, it's all full of houses. I mean, the, um, the area itself, I didn't mention this before, but that area of St. George and connected to that is Washington and uh, then there's Santa Clara and that's connected to the, the city called the Ivans. Uh, so all of those combined, you're looking at a population of about 100,000 people. So quite a few people. Um, you go to the next slide. It's a very religious city. That's the temple in St. George. Actually, that temple was built uh, before the Salt Lake Temple, which is in Temple Square. That's kind of like the Mecca uh, of Mormons, but this is, was actually pre-built that. Brigham Young was living in St. George. That was his summer home, and he had that built um, because he, he didn't think he'd live long enough to see the, the Salt Lake one built. It was, took a little longer to build, and he was right. He died before that one was built, but he did get to see this one built. Big deal. Anyway, the point is, a uh, friend reminded me today, I think we'd like to make that our new church building if we can. Uh, so the um, 98%, well, I should say it this way. This is actually how it's, how to, to help you realize the condition of Utah. Why are we going to Utah? Well, three quarters of the population of St. George itself goes to church every Sunday. Three quarters. Of that three quarters, 98% of them are Mormon. There are probably 0.3% of the population there is born again. Uh, there's a huge lack of gospel presentation, authentic Christian living in Utah. If you were to put a big map around all the nation, the one who has the least gospel presence is the state of Utah. And it's right over there. Utah is also the state where they say church plants are, or that's the state where church plants go to die. So I figured that'd be a good start. If we can last there, then we'll be all right. Um, but we're going with a team of uh, four pastors, um, Jeff and Jeff, who's married to Molly Schaefer. Uh, they have a little, a little girl named Keely. They're coming. He lives in Kansas now, but he's going to help me with that barber shop that I'm opening in St. George. And uh, Mike Shirley is going down. Mike's single. Ladies, this is your last chance. He's not even here for me to embarrass him, but he's, he's going to be doing a lot of the evangelism. We're going to start a podcast together and uh, try to get some good discussion and some good stuff out there for people to be able to listen to and understand. And Mormons, because they're so afraid of what they're going to be seen as, um, that it's a very much superficial sort of um, 
pagan religion. Uh, it's not Christian, and it's, they say a completely different thing about God, but they use all the same terms. So it sounds Christian, but if you were to ask them to define the terms that they're using, you'd find that their definitions are nothing like our definitions. So, but because everything's on the surface, everything's very clean, they have, of all the states in the, in the union, they are the most, they give the most charitably, they volunteer the most out of their own time, and they are the best place to start a business. They're very good business people. Very good law and order. You won't find a lot of bad neighborhoods in Utah. But, sadly, they're also number one in uh, assault on children sexually of any state in the union. They're also number one in the use of pornography on the internet by a landslide, by about 40% more than the highest state underneath them. 40% more higher rate in Utah. How is that possible? Well, their religion has the, it has the uh, form of godliness, but it lacks power. So we're going to go down there and we're going to show them what the real gospel is. We're going to go down there and stir the pot. So that's what's going on St. George. If you remember to pray for us, that would be great. Keep praying for us. Um, we're, we're going down there. We're working with our own hands, just like Paul did. And uh, so we're able to sustain what we're doing there. We've already run into another, this is kind of neat. I didn't say this in the first service because I have more time. You're going to be here till two o'clock in the afternoon. Congratulations. The, there's another church down there that we ran into this last time. Mark and I went down last week and set up the barbershop as much as we can get done, which is a huge help. It was great to have Mark to help me. We actually knocked it out really fast. So we had some time to do some other things, and we went to the temple that you saw, and they have a little visitor center there, and most of the time I just keep my mouth shut, and I let them explain everything, and let the person who's going with me get the feel and the vibe of whatever they're putting out there. But for some reason or another, this guy said too many things that were just untrue, and I was very respectful, and we had a really great um, back and forth. It was really good. He's probably in his 80s, and uh, he was very sincere about his, his beliefs. Um, and uh, so as we're doing that, there's this young man who came in, he's in his early 20s, and he's kind of listening to Mark, he's listening to me, he's listening to how we're interacting with this guy, and he's got a couple of interjections of his own, and we can tell by what he's saying that, well, okay, this guy's a Christian. So we step outside after we're done talking to that guy, because we had to go pick up Matthew from work. And we, we get out there, and we're talking to him, and, and we're saying, hey, do you have a church you're going to? And he says, oh, yeah, I'm a part of a church plant in the Ivans. I said, oh, really? They said, yeah, it's called the Grace Place. And it's, uh, it's three guys that are going down. One, one the, kind of the head guy's from Austria. His name's Harold. His wife's name's Helga. And they are really sweet people. And we went to their Bible study. They had a Bible study that night, and he invited us. We were like, well, we don't believe in coincidences. So we went ahead and went to the Bible study, and we really enjoyed it. Turns out all three of them were trained at, uh, in LaGrange, the Frontier School of the Bible. So God's doing stuff down there from different areas of the country we don't even know about. Um, unfortunately, if you only go to the Southern Baptist Resource, they often only identify Southern Baptist churches. <laughs> um, there are other church plants going on down there too, which is really exciting. It's exciting to be a part. It seems like God's really um, going to bring about a pretty... He's bringing his forces in, so he's going to do something. We're just excited to be a part of it. So uh, if you, you want to pray about St. George, if you're retired, that's a really great place to retire. Huge retirement community. You have a huge mission field right there in front of you. Uh, so 
or whoever. They've got a lot of stuff. They need people with trades down there. They said if anybody's got a trade, they can write their own ticket because they don't have skilled people. They've got a huge, busting, growing community. It's one of the fastest growing uh, communities in the nation right now, and they are, they're dying for people who know how to do anything. So if you've got a trade, come on down. Let's go stomp in the kingdom of Satan. Um, let's get into Matthew chapter 11. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and thank you for the opportunity to open your word and I pray that your spirit would convict us where we need to change, where we need your hand and power in our life to be able to change, to conform to your word. Lord, I pray that the message of the kingdom is made clear this morning. Lord, that if anyone doesn't know you, Lord, that today would be the day that they, they reject them, the, the kingdom that they have built with their own hands, their own will, their own desires, and they would cling to your kingdom and call out to you for salvation this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this, the reason I'm preaching this sermon is it's something that really has been stirring in my heart for a long time, and I really even couldn't put it into words until my dad and I were in North Carolina a couple weeks ago, and we were having dinner and some chicken wings or something, and we were talking, and this, this theme of the seriousness and, the, and, the, and the, the vitalness of the church, because what we've noticed was there's a lot of big churches out there and they're full of people that know the word, but they don't think it's their responsibility to fight, right? And that's the fault of leadership in many cases, uh, but this is happening a lot and it's frustrating me. And I don't want, we don't want, the leadership here doesn't want Larimer Valley Chapel to ever be a place where you come and watch the professionals or rather a place where you come because you know this is where you're gonna be trained and filled and encouraged and nourished to do the will of God that he has for you, directly for you. In Matthew chapter 11, we have this interaction between Jesus and the disciples of John the Baptist. It says in verse one, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. John the Baptist is in prison. And he's obviously discouraged. Sometimes people will say, well, maybe he sent this message because he wanted his disciples to be encouraged. We'd really hate for John the Baptist to have any kind of flaw. But that's not really what's being made clear here. What's obvious is that John the Baptist is in prison. He's hearing about the ministry of Christ and he's not satisfied because he sends his disciples out and he, to ask Jesus that question. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? He asks him frankly. He's not a Pharisee. See, John the Baptist is not a Pharisee. He is a prophet. He is a man of God. He stands in a different office. He's, he stands supreme, as we'll, we'll realize, to any other human being. So he asks him frankly, are you the one who is to come or not? And he had understandable reasons to doubt in Jesus. 
But they, those reasons, it was reasonable for him to doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. That didn't mean it was right. What I mean by reasonable is he had reasons because he had a picture of who Jesus was supposed to be, what his ministry was supposed to look like. And it's been given to him since when he was a child. If we look to Luke chapter 2, sorry, Luke chapter 1, the very end of Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, at the beginning of John the Baptist's life, he was, he was filled with the Spirit of God. As soon as uh, Jesus, who was in the womb of Mary, came, the Spirit of God filled John the Baptist and he kicked in his mother's womb at the very presence of Jesus. So they knew they had someone special. More than that, Zechariah, his father, uh, was given directive from Gabriel, the angel, that they would have a child that they'd prayed for. But not only that, but he would be the one who's a forerunner to the Messiah. And so when he is born, in Luke chapter 1, verse 67, this is Zechariah's prophecy. And imagine, John the Baptist has heard this his whole life about who he is. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. You see that? If the ministry of Christ was supposed to come, then there was no reason to fear that he would deliver his holy ones from the hand of their enemies. And you, my child, speaking of John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. His entire life was devoted to be the forerunner to the king of kings. And so there's some things even in this prophecy in the very beginning that this is why he had an understandable confusion. If he was supposed to be the one who was prophesying about Christ's coming, the forerunner, the one, the last Old Testament prophet. Why wasn't he being saved from his enemies? Why is he sitting in caged in prison and, and hearing that he's going to be executed? This doesn't seem to jive. And if it's not jiving for him, maybe he's concerned for all those who are going to follow Christ. That they could have the same fate. Either way, John is low. Here's a real man of God in real discouragement. Don't think for a second that just because you're following the Lord and you're being obedient to his word and you're trusting him, that he's not going to bring you into valleys of shadows. There will be times in a strong Christian's life, and, and Charles Spurgeon said that it's, it's funny that often the strongest and most zealous leaders are the ones who are just as strongly and zealously put into doubt. And, and Charles Spurgeon was that way. 
He was often in great, great depression for how great of a preacher he was and, and the great work that he was doing in England. There were times that he was very low. And so I think it's important that we have compassion on John the Baptist here. Where he was, what he was suffering. And Jesus' response was so great because he responds with an Old Testament reference of himself. And that would have come from Isaiah 35. And Isaiah 35, starting in verse 3, the context of what Jesus said anyway, the context of that reference would have come from here. And if John the Baptist knew scripture like John the Baptist did, his mind from what Jesus told him would have sort of flashed back to this prophecy. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus told the Pharisees, if you can't believe that I'm the son of God, believe on account of the works that I do. He told Philip that. Philip said, show us the Father, it's enough. Which is like, I don't even know what kind of question that is. But he says, show us the Father, it's enough. And he says, Philip, have you been with me so long that you don't know the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you can't believe that I'm from the Father, believe on the count of the works that I do. The works were enough. They were enough. And they were important. If Jesus did not do miracles, he would have been passed, he would have been pushed aside very quickly. That was the crux. That was the thing that that people couldn't escape. He was raising people from the dead. You see, what they were experiencing, they were seeing firsthand the Isaiah 53 Messiah, but they wanted the Isaiah 9 Messiah. They were seeing the Zechariah 12 Messiah, but they wanted the Zechariah 14 Messiah. The Messiah will come in power he will ride to the east gate. He will crush all the enemies. He will make all nations as dust that just kind of blows away. He will not only be victorious, but he will judge the world perfectly when he comes. But you can't avoid those other passages either. The servant of God, the one who comes and by his wounds we are healed. He is pierced for our transgressions, right? That was hard. But that was also there. The idea of two, two returnings, two comings of Jesus Christ would have been very difficult to come to if you only knew the Old Testament. It would have been really hard. But Jesus says, just keep believing. Look at the works I'm doing. Believe according to the works that I'm doing. That was enough. That's enough. And he sends them away. And, and you can imagine that the people hearing this reproof that he gave to John the Baptist, who was doubting in what, now they're around Jesus all the time. They're seeing him heal people. They're seeing all these miracles done. They're hearing him preach. They're like, surely this is the Messiah. Surely, look at these amazing things that he does. How come John the Baptist is doubting? What's his problem, right? Well, Jesus turns and he often gave instruction after he interacted with people, right? You see that all the time in the, in the gospels, whether it be the centurion 
or the bleeding woman or the, the blind beggars or the demonics, right? He always turns and instructs the cloud or the rich young ruler. Sometimes he, he said good things about him. Sometimes he thinks said bad things about him. If he had a, an interaction that was bad, he would address that. A good, he would address that. So maybe they thought he was going to turn around and say, see, you have to have faith. You can't deny me. He doesn't. He vindicates John the Baptist. He doesn't want them thinking ill of this man. So what does he say? He calls them to remember why they were attracted to John the Baptist in the first place. He went, and as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? See, this again is it's just, I love how Jesus gives these analogies. He gives these pictures for us. What'd you go to see? A reed shaking in the wind? What'd you go out to the wilderness to see? A bunch of reeds? A reed? Did you go out there and stare at a reed? Is this an uncommon man? Is this some kind of common person to you? If you saw one reed, you saw all reeds. They're all the same. And they have the nature that bends to the climate around them. The wind blows this way, they blow that way. Right? They don't go opposite, they go with the flow. They were used to leaders like that. Right? John the Baptist wasn't like that. That's why he was so attractive. That's why he was in jail, by the way. That's why he was imprisoned. He, he stood up to the king who could do whatever he wants. His father was ruthless. This king does whatever he wants. He kills whoever he wants. He's not afraid to kill anyone. Now, he was a little afraid of John the Baptist because John the Baptist was held as a prophet to the people. He didn't want to riot, necessarily. But on the other hand, he had taken a woman that was his brother's wife as his own wife, and that was wrong. And so John the Baptist called him out on it. He said, you're in sin for taking her as your wife. And so he, well, we can't have that, put him in prison. Do you remember in John 9 when, the, when Jesus has, has healed the man born blind and his parents are brought in before uh, the religious leaders there and, and they're questioning him and saying, hey, is this your son? Was he born blind? I mean, as if they didn't know this guy. He lived in their town, right? Was he born blind? They really want the parents, because they want to exa- exhaust their power here. They want to show how powerful they are. And they say, you know, he's of age. You can ask him yourself. Go ahead. This is our son. He was born blind. Now he can see, you know, as to who this man was that healed him. I don't know. Ask him. It says in parentheses that they said this because they feared the Jews because they would have been, they could have been, ca- they'd already agreed that anyone who confessed Christ would be cast out of the synagogue. So you didn't go against the flow. But John the Baptist, he sees these guys coming down in line to get baptized, and he says, who warned you brood of vipers to flee from the wrath to come? He just outright says it. He doesn't ask them why they're there. He doesn't say, hey guys, how you doing? He just calls them a pack of snakes. You're not supposed to be here, right? Who warned you? Who told you guys? I mean, that's kind of embarrassing. But he didn't care. John the Baptist was not afraid of anyone. He wasn't a reed that just went with the tides. The Pharisees lusted for the praise of the people. The king lusted for the power of Rome. The Sadducees, they just loved everything Greek. And here you have John in the wilderness standing up to whoever. And people are like, man, this guy's got some guts. 
we got to go talk to this. Can you see the way he preaches? He doesn't just say, oh, oh, you Pharisees, come down here. You guys come first. You come first and get baptized. We're we're so happy you're here. Thanks for coming. You being here is going to do really well for my ministry. Thanks a lot. No, he had no concern for that. He preached truth, and people were attracted to that. Jesus goes on to say, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? They probably laughed when he said that because they knew that John wore camel skins and a leather belt. He dressed in what the wilderness provided for him. I'm not saying we should all make a weird fashion statement. But he was really attacking the opposite extreme, which was all these religious leaders, and Jesus even called him out for this in Matthew 23. They dressed with prestige, right? They wore things that made them stick out and they could impress people with. And that was a big deal in Rome. You didn't want to be viewed. There was a different dress code for each status in that culture, okay? So if you were wearing soft clothing, that means you didn't work for a living. You didn't have to labor like all those peasants. You were wise and people respected you and gave you money just to be you, right? John lived in the wilderness. He didn't take money from anybody. He lived on locusts and honey. That's what he lived on. He had nothing to lose, nothing to lose, no reputation to lose, nothing to lose. And that was attractive. Jesus is saying, don't forget why you love John, okay? He's faltering in his faith here. But just so you know, he says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet, verse 9, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, and I will prepare your way before you. This guy is my partner. He's my amigo. This is the guy that was planned in the Old Testament, connected with me. He references Malachi. The last thing we know in Malachi is that before the day of the Lord, there's going to become one in the spirit of Elijah. That's John the Baptist. He says, before you even think that you can even criticize this guy, you don't even know who you're dealing with. This is the one who is more than a prophet. He's the only one that could be called a friend, be called a friend of Christ during Christ's ministry. What would life have been like when they were visiting each other's children? I have no idea. I'm sure they were close. John the Baptist lived his entire life for Christ. And his role was extremely important. Who else in that time could say they had a prophetic role to play? No one. No one but Mary. Mary could. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He was the best. This was the best prophetic role you could have. I mean, all the prophets, think of it, all the prophets were prophesying for the day, the day of the Lord, the coming judgment of God when he was going to come and Israel was going to be brought in. This was the only prophet who was going to meet him, who was going to know him, who was related to him. They were cousins. There's none greater than John the Baptist. And then Jesus does this. He puts some weight behind what he just said about John the Baptist. Because what we don't want to think about John the Baptist, well, he was really great because because of his role as a prophet. So when Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he, we could say, well, yeah, that's because we've been redeemed by the spirit and we live in the new covenant. So as far as status goes in the kingdom, we're better. 
That would be easy, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be great? You could just say, well, now you can do whatever you want. You're better than John the Baptist. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's true that if anyone's in Christ, they have a, a better standing than anyone in the Old Testament. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. So what Jesus has changed you into? John the Baptist was born a prophet. He was born a prophet. He was filled with the Spirit of God before he was ever even born. We are changed by the Spirit of God into a new creature. Lastly, for the days... From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The violent take it by force. This is the most, I don't know, one of the most inspiring verses to me. This is one that when I read it, I get fuel in my veins. I get so excited about that. The kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. You can, that first part where it says the kingdom of God suffers violence, you can actually read that two, you could translate that two different ways and you'd be, there'd be really no reason why you wouldn't do one or the other. And they don't contradict each other. But another way you could read that is from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God comes violently. And the violent take it by force. It has a violent nature to it. It has a violent nature to it. See, even in John the Baptist's day, everyone was conforming to whatever they were told to conform to, but he didn't. He was wild, and people loved him for it. They counted him as a prophet because he was so wild. Yet in the kingdom of heaven, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. What does it mean to be violent for the kingdom? What does it mean that the violent take it by force? Well, John Bunyan wrote a really amazing book, I think you've heard of it, it's referenced a lot in this church, called Pilgrim's Progress. And in the Pilgrim's Progress, it's a, written in the 1600s, if you can get a modernized version, it's a little easier to read. But it's a giant allegory about the Christian life. And there's this moment where this, the, the protagonist comes in, his name's Christian, and he is given all these scenes to behold, all these little these little scenes, these little spiritual or whatever scenes where this interpreter is showing them all these images of these, it's almost like, a, like if they had the technology there, they would have showed them movies or something, right? They didn't have that there, so there's just these plays almost. And one of them was this, uh, this palace, and it was a big, beautiful palace, and on the top were these people kind of roaming around on this top tower, and there were these great big doors at the bottom, and there were lots of people that really wanted to go in there because it looked like a really great place to be. The problem was that there was these really nasty, gnarly dudes standing on the outside of the door, and they weren't letting anybody in. They were just these mean dudes. They had weapons. They were, they were probably jeering at people. Try it. Try to come in. Try to come in. Now, it doesn't say that they were welcomed in, but they were keeping people out so that all that crowd that saw those, they, they saw how nice the kingdom was, but then they saw those mean people, and they decided to just avoid it. Eh, it's okay. But then this guy walks up, and outside this door there was a scribe who had, who had this table and a, 
and a list and a pen. And he says, this guy walks up, and whoever's name was on the pen, in the book, right, had the chance to get in. So he says, put my name down. I'm going in, right? Puts his helmet on, draws his sword, and this guy just sprints toward those other guys. And these guys just start wailing on him, right? And he's just, everything he's got, he doesn't even have a shield. He's just swinging, hacking, swinging, hacking, until finally, after receiving many deadly blows and giving many deadly blows, he breaks in there. And the door's shut, and everyone sings from the inside. Come in, come in, eternal glory thou shalt win. John Bunyan gave a really amazing analogy when it comes to this passage. They understood it right. Now, it's true, the way it's written in your Bible, the kingdom of God suffers violence from John the Baptist until now. Absolutely. John the Baptist was in prison. Jesus would hang on a cross. Every one of the apostles would eventually die from the wounds of martyrdom. John the Baptist, we think, is the only one who died of old age. Or John, John the Apostle is the only one who died of old age. And surely, even to this day, many, many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians are killed just for being Christian. So surely, the gospel, I should say the Christian church, is suffering violence. But there's a reason for it, right? It's because we tend to stir the pot, okay? We are violent first. A radical instigator will yield a radical response. And that's what we do. That's what we do. If you say, well, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to be a troublemaker. Sorry, that's not the way this works. We cause trouble. What do I mean by that? Well, let me explain. I'm going to give you two ways that we can be violent about our Christianity. First, we are violent. We are violently denying ourselves. We are, we are violent against our own desires and our own lusts and our own will. Before someone can pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, to Christ, to God, they have to deny their will and their kingdom first. Jesus said, you can't be my disciple unless you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What's so appealing about being hung on a cross? I don't know. Nothing. There's nothing appealing about being a Christian on this earth. It may cost you everything. But you have to deny. And no one can even be a part of the Christian family. No one's going to be brought into the Christian, the, the godly, the kingdom of God if they don't first deny themselves. Jesus said that you even have to deny your own life. Whoever denies their life for my sake will find it, but whoever seeks to save their own skin, save their own life, will lose it. I'm worth it. I am worth it. I will give you eternal life. I will give you that life, but it doesn't come with you attached to it. You have to deny yourself. You have to deny who you are. You have to deny your dreams, goals, and ambitions. I'm sorry if you were given a lie that Christianity is simply believing that God loves you and he wants to make your life better. 
And if you accept him, then your life will get better than it is now. You'll get the job you want because now you're going to pray and God's going to listen to you because you're his son or daughter. And now you're going to get whatever job you want. You're going to get advanced. You're going to make more money. You're going to have a loving family and you're going to die a happy person. If that's the lie that you were told, I'm sorry for whoever told you that, but that's not true. It's not very healthy to be a Christian. It's going to be very hard. But if you've already denied yourself, it's just like Mark presented when he, when he was preaching that Sunday night. He referenced Band of Brothers, a great, a really cool film about uh, these guys who went through World War II. This guy, Lieutenant Spears, looks at this really scared soldier and he says, what's the matter with you? And the guy says, I'm scared. He says, we're all scared. The only difference is that you still have hope. It's only until a soldier realizes he's already dead that he can function as a true soldier. If you've already denied yourself, you've got nothing to lose. You're like John the Baptist. You're greater than John the Baptist because you can be remade into a nature that is able to do these things. You are violent to your own desires. The second way you are violent is you are violently attacking the lies and the philosophies of this present world. And that's what gets us into trouble, is it not? Nobody's bothered because you don't sin or that you, you know, you've chosen to to do whatever God wants you to do. But in connection with that, the reason you're doing what you're doing is so that you can be violently taking down these wicked philosophies of the world. Obviously, we're not violent carnally. Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and you've heard this before, but I want to read it. 2 Corinthians 10 says, in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Lofty opinions. They're always so lofty, aren't they? Always so lofty. Oh, you're, oh, you believe in God? Right? Not like me. I'm enlightened, right? I know better. You know, I used to be like you. You'll hear that sometimes, right? I used to be like you. I used to believe in God too. But, you know, then I realized I'm better than that, right? So self-righteous. We're not kind, to those people, are we? Now, they don't think we are. We are being kind, but the reality is we're not very nice. Say, well, I'm sorry you left the only hope you had. How did Jesus violently attack these worldviews? Very directly and with authority. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. You've heard it said, Do not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery already in his heart. How do we say that? You've heard it said that abortion is a woman's right. But God says that anyone guilty of child sacrifice is guilty of death and a punishment deserving of death. It's murder. You've heard it said that all roads lead to heaven. But I say to you, Jesus Christ declared that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. 
You've heard it said that I'm a pretty good person. I think that God will accept me based on the merits of my goodness. God's word says that there's none righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have fallen short. We all need to be saved from our sin. And we do that in kindness and we do that in love, but we do it. And it will invoke a violent response because we're hitting them right where it hurts. This is an old statement, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? That's not true. It's not true. When you attack a person's identity, their existence as a good person, when you tell them they're not a good person, they will defend their integrity. They don't like what we have to say, but we say it. We say it. We've been changed to say it. We are violent against the darkness and the philosophies of the world. Those things that are untrue about our God, and we are not afraid to do it. Because we tend to believe that he that is in us, who, that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. We have that confidence. Now that sort of violent Christianity that overcomes good with, or I'm sorry, overcomes evil with good, right? Doesn't return evil for evil, but returns, but overcomes evil with good. That kind of Christian life and that kind of Christian speech, it puts tension on people. If you're not putting tension on people by your relationships, you're doing it wrong. Jesus said, you thought I'd come to bring peace? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide every relationship you have. This message divides relationships. People will not like you anymore. They'll think you're a great person. They'll think you're a hard worker. And then all of a sudden, you're going to lay some weight of God's law on them. And when you do that, they may not like you very much for it. But guess what? It doesn't matter. You've denied yourself, haven't you? Isn't this what your life's about? Isn't this why you get up in the morning? Isn't this what you were meant to be? We put that tension on people. So that as we live our life, it's as if, it's as if they say, I really just can't be around that person because I feel like I'm not, they're not really gonna be satisfied with me until I make a decision about Jesus Christ. And that's right. We're not well with where they're at. Just like a good doctor is not going to be okay with a patient who refuses to take the medication. They continue to die because of it. We should not be okay with that. It's going to take a couple of variables. It's going to take strong leadership that does this. Strong churches have strong leadership. And whether it's the leader of a church or if you're the leader in your home, moms and dads, you're going to be put in a leadership position and leaders need to live this. We don't just talk the talk. We walk the walk. Our great Christian martyr heroes that we love so much. One of them is someone by the name of Polycarp, which is kind of an interesting name. But it, this guy was a disciple of the Apostle John and he was sentenced to death by burning and he was commanded before he was killed to sort of 
recant what he believed by, by saying, away with the atheists. That doesn't seem, that seems strange because you need to understand that Romans called Christians atheists because they didn't recognize Jesus as God. And so they believed that Christians were worshiping a fake God. So they called them atheists. There really wasn't a lot of people out there that didn't believe in God. That was sort of silly. So they called Christians atheists. So he said, pronounce away with the atheists. So, so Polycarp turned to the angry crowd who wanted to kill him and said, away with the atheists. <laughs> Another one is Athanasius. The emperor told Athanasius, Athanasius, the world is against you. And he quickly responded, then Athanasius is against the world. Immovable. We sense the urge to be among the shaking reeds. I understand that. That is not who you were made to be. It takes Christian leaders and it takes trained people to live this way. If we are going to be a a violent band of people who's going to go out and do things for Christ, we have to be trained in God's word. You can't remain ignorant. There are no sideline Christians. Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. He will tear your life apart. You're easy pickings to him. Just because he's not paying attention to you now. Because you're sort of hiding in the reeds. Doesn't mean that he won't find you. It takes people who know God's word. It takes people who can give a sound answer. Do you know the word of God? Are you trained to be a warrior for Christ who is able to bring violence to the, to the culture and the ideologies that Satan has so saturated our world with? How can we have so many Christians in this town and we can't be more annoying? It's because we've gotten tame, haven't we? We're tame. We're like a giant ripped muscular lion in a tin cage and some wimpy guy in a top hat comes down and says, lay, and we lay. Roll over and we roll over. Jump through the hoop, we jump through the hoop. Because we've forgotten who we are. And we are starting to believe the weaklings around us. You know when I open air preach, you know who gives me the most trouble? It's not the world. It's weak faith Christians. They walk up and say, I just don't really agree with how you do this. I give them a three-word answer. I don't care. So now what? I guess you've got to keep walking. Because we've sort of believed that if we've offended the world, we've done something wrong. That's what we do. Okay? That's what we do. I'm talking to three different people today. I believe that. There are three different people among us. There's the untamed Christians. They're wild. They say it. When the opportunity presents itself, they lay it out. They enjoy that. They love people. They have a spirit of power and of love 
and have a disciplined mind. They know the word and they're eager to give it. They get up in the morning and they say, okay, Lord, what is it? And as soon as their feet hit the ground, the demons go, dang it, he's awake. That's the kind of person that you can be if you yield to the spirit of God because you are a new creation. To that person, I say, praise the Lord for you. I'm so thankful we have people like that in our church. But just remember, there's gonna be times when you hit the valley. There's gonna be times when you're in a dungeon of despair and it feels like there's no way out. Remember, Jesus always has the nutritious, spiritual aid that you need. You just needed him to ask to lift your head. Go to the Lord for that. Don't forget, the shield of faith is just as necessary as a sort of truth. Many missionaries come off the mission field in shambles because they left that at home. They thought that their strength and their zeal was enough. You will be discouraged. Trust in the Lord's comfort. Then there's the tamed lions that we have here this morning. You don't realize what you have. But you know what's interesting is that if you really are that way, if you're the type of person that sort of like believes in the pressures of the world around you and they tell you to shake when the wind comes and you shake, they say if you don't dress this way, you're not going to be acceptable, and so you do. When you hear the word of God and you get around some other wild lions, you're going to want what they have. You're going to want it. You're going to be hungry for it. Are you hungry for that? Tamed lions, are you hungry for that? To preach, to say to people without a shadow of doubt, not I believe that Jesus died for our sins, right? But rather, Jesus died for our sins. Not, I believe he is God. He is God. You say it like that. You say it as it is. I really don't like it when people talk to me like this. I don't like people shoving religion down my throat. Well, that's what I do. I shove religion down people's throats all day. And you know what? I'm a winner. I'm a winner. You think we're going to St. George to see what happens? To experiment? We're going to win. We will win. Because the church of Jesus Christ is built by him and nothing prevails against the church of God. If the gates of hell can't stand up to the church, what's Utah going to do? Give me a break. I'm not putting confidence in my intelligence or in my own faith or the faith of the people that I'm with. I'm just putting confidence in God, very God. When General Mattis was asked what kept him up at night, his response was quick and cold. He says, nothing. I keep other people up at night. I think that's a great response. Don't you love leaders who talk like that? Like, oh, snap. Right? Leaders, we have the kingdom of God behind us. Remember when Jesus was about to be taken by those Jewish authorities and, and Peter grabs a, a sword and whacks off somebody's ear? He says, he says, Peter, what are you doing? Do you know that if I wanted to, my father would send, I could ask, my father would tend, send down legions of angels? That's not what this is about. 
This isn't about a kingdom. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, not of this world. To the hypocrite, the pretender, the one who's faking it, Jesus, talk to people like you. People that keep lists, people that have all the do's and don'ts. You got them all lined out. You're really good at looking Christian. And maybe you think you're Christian because you act like a Christian. Okay? Nicodemus was somebody like that. I think he was well-meaning. He's just a Pharisee out there doing his thing, looking good before people. And he sees Jesus and he sees he's definitely doing miracles. All of his buddies are like, yeah, but he's not a king. Couldn't be the Messiah. Couldn't be the Messiah. When we know his parents, that's what they said in his hometown. Couldn't be him. Nicodemus says to Jesus, he says, we know you're from God, teacher, because nobody could do these things that you do unless they be from God. And Jesus turns to him and says, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're born again. Now that's pretty offensive to somebody who's been working pretty hard to get to heaven their whole life. They've established something. They've established something. I told that to the guy that we were, Mark and I were talking to in that temple. I said, I understand what you want me to do, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to be born again. You need to cast off this fake religious garbage that you've been doing your whole life and come to Christ. I know that's very difficult for you to hear, but that's what you need to hear. He didn't really want to talk a lot after that, but he did say he would think about it, which I thought was pretty neat. If you've been pretending for this long, I know you hate this sermon. I know you do. And you could find another church and you'd be just surely going to hell there as you would be here. But consider this. Consider this. Jesus Christ is coming back. Okay? And if you've been living your life in hypocrisy and you think that showing up to this church sort of permit you to do whatever you want over here so you enjoy sin over here, but you sort of balance out the scales by coming to church. You will be sorely disappointed when Christ comes. Because when he comes, when he comes, there's two groups of people. It's very clear. There'll be those who shrink back in shame and those who shout him on. Lord Jesus, you've come. We've been waiting for you. Like John the Baptist, we've been living our whole life for you. And so you're so happy when he comes. You're so looking forward to that. Why? Because you're just like him. You live your life just like he lives it. Is that you? Maybe it's not you. Maybe you don't live your life for Christ because you are just downright cowardly. You're either a cowardly lion or you are a faker. You are one of the two. So which one is it? You need to make a decision. I beg you to make a decision before the Lord comes back because when he comes back, it's no more. That's it. That's it. You are either violent and you will take the kingdom or you are deceiving yourself. Please don't deceive yourself anymore. Let's be right with who you are. Let's be 
in a right relationship with God. Let's walk in authenticity just like John the Baptist walked. And for Pete's sakes, people, let's go be violent for the kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the conviction that it brings. But Lord, mostly we need your grace. Lord, every single one of us in, our, in this room falls short, including myself, many times of faithfully following you, remembering to trust you for the grace and the power to do your will. So Lord, we do ask that you give us the grace to be obedient. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for our, our sinful behavior. Lord, forgive us for our cowardice. Lord, we were wrong in being a cowardly. We don't have to live in this tin cage that the world's built around us and told us to, to be obedient, to sit, roll over, jump through hoops. We don't care what they think. Lord, you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you have commissioned us to do your will. So, Lord, I pray that you would bring us power. You would lift our heads so that we may be obedient to you and, and pleased at your coming. We ask there's any here who don't know you because they've been faking it. Lord, this would be the day that they call out to you for salvation. They experience salvation. They experience the fellowship with your spirit, and they begin this journey of being trained up to be a fighter for the cross. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.